How you doing, everybody? You guys are listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. This is Mike Del Judas. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Before we get started, we wanted to take a minute and dedicate this episode to the great drummer, Ron Tutt, who we sadly lost over the weekend. Ron was a monster drummer with a great feel and creativity behind every song he touched. Ronnie was Elvis Presley's drummer in the 1970s in the TCB band. He also played with Jerry Garcia, Neil Diamond, Roy Orbison, The Carpenters, and many more. In our world, he's best known as the drummer on Billy Joel's Piano Man and Street Life Serenade albums, lending his unique style to Billy's formative albums in the 1970s. Upon learning the news, both Billy Joel and Liberty DeVito paid tribute to Ronnie. Liberty says, he played great on Piano Man and Street Life. He made me a better drummer having to study him. And Billy says, I'm very sad to hear of the death of Ronnie Tut. He played on the original recording of Piano Man in 1973 and most of the other songs on that album. Ron was a power drummer who also played with finesse. His timing was impeccable and he played his drum parts to the lyrics as well as the music in any song he played on. His live performances with Elvis Presley were legendary. He will be greatly missed. We couldn't say it any better ourselves. Rest in peace, Ronnie. Thank you for your music and inspiration that will continue to live on for generations to come. Now, on with the episode. You are my sanctuary, my Mona Lisa. You always had my heart Even when we were young You always ease my worry With just one look I found Billy Joel's monthly residency at Madison Square Garden resumes on November 5th after nearly a year and a half off due to the pandemic. In the lead-up to the show, we sat down with guitarist Mike Del Judas to talk about what he's been up to during that time. Even with the garden shows and annual summer tour off the calendar, Mike made the most of the shutdowns. He formed a new band, retooled his solo act, and is now gearing up to release an album of his own music. We'll hear about how Mike used the time off from Billy's band to recenter his career, and how he returned to the big stage by filling in on a role that has a deep connection to his roots in Billy's music. Join us as we dig deep into 2020 and the first half of 2021 with Mike Del Judas. Well, I have to say that this was another in a long line of great interviews. And that's not patting ourselves on the back. That is patting the backs of the people that not only take the time to come on here, but just offer up such great conversations with us. It's just invigorating just to talk to them, just to hear their enthusiasm come out of them and bounce off us, I guess. Everyone we've talked to over the past year and a half has been so different and so fun. Everyone with very different connections to the music and, you know, different eras of the band and whatnot. But with Mike here, he was 
our very first guest. We spoke with him February 2020, just before everything changed. So it's kind of fitting that we spoke to him once again as we're coming out of things, hopefully. And uh, it's a great snapshot into the working musician and how they're navigating the pandemic and having to completely change how they do everything. You know, we go into these interviews expecting to touch on certain topics and sort of anticipating some of the answers. But this was another great example of a conversation that just went in directions we weren't expecting. And, you know, they were great roads to go down. (laughs) And Mike's a great conversationalist and want to just let the conversation where it goes. And we kind of gave him the quick framework that we want to see what he's been up to. Um, but everything else was loose and unfolded organically. And it was great to to hear his side of things. And, you know, I'm glad he's doing well. And how amazing to hear how Billy has taken care of the band and the crew over the last year and a half. And it's it's palpable, the excitement that you can see to getting back on the stage, too, as well. So once again, we're going to build everything up and then put it on pause. But let's read a few emails first. We got a bunch of great responses to our episode on the bridge. We grabbed two of the emails in particular. The first one comes from John Volpe. I hope I'm saying his name right. He writes, enjoyed the podcast today. What I remember about the bridge album was being excited for a new album. I bought the vinyl album right away and shortly later bought a CD player. So I rebought the bridge on CD. Didn't notice any difference in the formats at the time. As always, I made a cassette recording for my car cassette player. No CDs in cars yet. I remember I wasn't too keen about running on ice leading off. It was different. When Billy played A Matter of Trust on Letterman, I recorded it on my VHS recorder and was happy he brought along David Brown to play on the show with him. Didn't get to go to the bridge tour shows at Madison Square Garden. It was sold out and the only tickets I found available were from New Jersey scalpers. I called one of them but didn't have any luck. When we were married in 89, we had a video of the event. I supplied to the videographer photos of me growing up to put into his wedding video as a timeline of my life leading up to getting married. I chose This Is The Time as the song to accompany the timeline photos. I always loved that song due to David Brown's beautiful guitar work. I thought the verse This Is The Time To Remember fit. Also, David Brown did play it once more on the Millennium Concert, but I think it was left off the CD. I do have it from YouTube when that concert was posted a few years back. Let me know if you need a copy of it, Millennium. And also, I have a great copy of Houston 79. Thanks again for the great content, John Volpe. Thanks, John. It's so great to hear your experiences surrounding the bridge when it came out. A few things that I noticed where he mentioned he bought the vinyl record right away and later bought the CD. 1986 was right around the time where where a CD was starting to really come into prominence. I think... 86 vinyl and cassettes still had the stronghold, but that late 80s when CDs really started to take off. And, you know, he's not the only one that ended up buying these records in multiple formats as they got, you know, different stereos and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to see I'm not the only one. Yeah. Interesting to, to hear that you didn't notice much difference between the vinyl and the first run of compact discs either. You know, it makes you wonder if they were already... I guess thinking in those terms, I don't know if they had a lot more bandwidth to work with or less bandwidth to work with from going from vinyl to CD at the time, um, or if they were thinking in those terms, like, oh, we should mix these more with digital in mind yet, even if it was analog. Yeah, I'm actually curious about the process back then, because 
obviously all of these albums probably up until greatest hits were done with vinyl records and even cassettes in mind but we're starting to get into the territory where a cd was the prominent thing and i i i definitely know that mastering is different based on the format vinyl records certainly have a much warmer sound by nature so i wonder if there was some retooling of the mix and the you know a bit of remastering going on to just kind of tweak a couple frequencies for the cd version this next email is from charlie cisneros who i believe this may be his first time emailing us so charlie first off thanks for reaching out uh he says hey guys been listening to the podcast lately listen to a few episodes so far I particularly like the album opener episode. That was a lot of fun. I've listened to the Bridge album a number of times and enjoyed it, even if it does still sit lower on my Billy Totem pole. That didn't stop me from buying an original pressing of it a few weeks ago. I knew that he was feeling burnt and a little unmotivated during the recording of the album, but never knew about the tensions in the band at the time. That was very interesting to learn about. You mentioned the EPK towards the end of the episode, which is a really interesting watch. And I was wondering how you two feel about the version of Modern Woman that's in it. It's a bit of a raw recording, but I think it's better than the version that was on the LP originally. That album version feels very 80s, whereas the rough recording in the EPK sounds a little leaner and grooves harder. I think I'd almost be interested to hear a remix of the whole record where it's done a little more in that style because I feel like my enjoyment of a few of these songs is hampered by the production a bit. I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts. Keep up the great work on the podcast. Charlie. All right. Thanks a lot for writing in, Charlie. We appreciate it. I think we're mostly in agreement. I am anyway. I remember hearing like the Modern Woman and even the uh, demo of Temptation be like, wow, these versions are great, you know. But you do have to wonder what happens when you hear the entire version of Modern Woman. Like maybe it just runs out of steam. We don't, we don't quite know. Or, hey, maybe that was the better version, but since it was for uh, the Ruthless People soundtrack, they had to 80s it up to make it pass muster. It's one of those things we'll probably never know. You know, there's not a whole lot of footage of Billy in the studio, and we've documented just a little bit of it so far. You you wonder what the process is there when, when a song changes its feel and its production style over the course of recording it. Um, I think historically, Billy likes to approach things very organically and you know you know he would come in with an idea and the band would just fall in and they would start working up arrangements so i feel like what we hear of temptation and what we hear of modern woman there in the epk i i almost feel like this is them working on figuring out the song before they're gonna like necessarily cut it for real we've touched on some modern singers lately you know mostly uh talking about tiktok appearances and this and that you know temptation and modern woman and this is the time i'd i'm almost morbidly curious to see what someone like olivia rodrigo would do with these songs you know as hip as these singers are we're going to look back on them and they're going to be as square as the 80s sound to us now and i don't mean that as an insult it just is what it is man you know there's just there's always pop singers and they're often locked into the times you know, in, in that sense, you know, when you have these real vocal forward songs and, you know, this album, I think we discussed isn't, isn't his best lyrically. I think there were times where he had a great first verse and kind of phoned in the rest. But, you know, honestly, that almost matches to me some of the very plain spoken lyrical styles that we hear today. 
it'd be interesting to hear someone that does a lot of the emoting in their voice take what we would perhaps call some of the more banal lyrics and uh, and just infuse them with a whole lot of emotion and uh, and some uh, little vocal flights of fancy there and see what happens. Speaking of the bridge, let's use this as a bridge, but um, over to our interview with Mike. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Hey there, son, let me talk to you. Let me tell you things that I need to teach you. And it may take some time, please bear with me. But maybe when you hear it, you will understand me a little more. And hey there, Daddy, you remember too. Patty's Day Parade, Tyler Avenue. Rocking on your shoulders to the sound of drums Nearly seven years old, but every ounce your son Where do the good ones go? Where do the heroes go? More than anything, we kind of wanted to catch up with you with everything that's happened from the last time uh, we spoke, which was uh, right before the pandemic hit, you guys were leading up to what would be the last time you played Madison Square Garden until you'll return in a few weeks. Were there like conversations at that point about whether or not these shows were going to go on or whether the tours were going to happen? I'm sure there was a ton of conversation going on up in management, you know, and of course the band, we had a we had our own chatter and some every once in a while, a little piece of information sneaks down to us. But for the most part, everybody was was still kind of like, it was really, it was coming down to it being Billy's decision to decide whether or not to keep doing it or not. I can remember, I think, a distinct conversation. I think something came up about Madonna had canceled her tour. Pretty sure we were in one of the dressing rooms. You know, he was kind of putting it out to us to kind of, you know, feel it out, I think. Or just say, you know, from what I can remember, it was a while ago. I think I had said something like, well, look, you got to be cautious. You know, you got to be cautious. You don't want to be the first guy to be doing a concert during COVID and having a bunch of people that get sick from it because that'll never come off your, you know, it'll come off your head. It didn't take, it doesn't take much. And it wasn't me that made it happen, obviously. It was, it, I think Billy was asking us because he was concerned and waiting to see what our responses, maybe, you know, get an, get an opinion. But it was fresh at that point. Madonna had just canceled the tour. We were, I think we were in Mexico City. And that's, and that's when Billy, you could tell he was about to pull the plug. It was just like, you know, kind of feeling it out. He didn't want to be, he didn't be on the bottom of the list of people that did it. He wanted to kind of make sure that he was doing the right thing. And I seem to recall too, that when it started to happen, I felt like a lot of the bigger tours that were active at the time, it seemed like a lot of people were watching everyone else to see. And once a couple started to go, it happened pretty quick. That's the domino effect. It's, it happened with venues also, you know, whereas one venue cancels a show and, and before you know it, no, nobody else wants to, you know, be the one to, uh, to do that. I'm nervous it was going to happen against, again this year. But obviously, you know, what are you going to get nervous about? I, I too, as you know, with my business on Long Island, I, you know, I, and now I work all over the country with, with uh, doing my own stuff. So it's, it's, it's the same thing. I have to make executive decisions for my business too, to make sure that I'm not on the leading edge of some massive catastrophe that happened at a venue or, 
and you see it all the time. One club owner just like, eh, don't worry about it before you know it. Everybody gets sick from there. And that venue is the, the venue that gets cursed. So nobody wants to be on that list. It's a shit list. And as much as you get frustrated inside, you're like, oh, come on, we could do it. No, you really can't. It's just not right. And no matter how much the itch is to want to play and want to make money and want to whatever, common sense eventually has to take over and for the better of everybody and the good of everyone. And you got to get past yourself sometimes and go, yeah, you know, I think it's the right thing to do, <laughs> you know, and then you know it is, you know, you know it's right. So, uh, well, and I've told people too, I know how much you're missing going and seeing live music and seeing bands and all this stuff. Well, imagine these guys on stage who like, this is what they do. If they're taking the precautions and it's not the right time or it's not the right situation, you know, they miss it more than anyone. There was a lot of a lot of stuff going on with uh, my Facebook show that I would do my live on the porch thing. And, you know, everybody thanking everybody, thanking me for doing the shows. And the truth is, I mean, I wouldn't have existed throughout COVID without that show, without an audience to play to, without uh, some some love coming back and some interaction of some sort, knowing that. What's weird is the virtual world, and, I, and I've talked about this a lot, the virtual world is different. You know, doing a show, there's pluses and there's negatives. No, you don't have the physical bodies in the room and that powerful energy. But what you don't have at that live show that you have all that powerful energy at is you don't have the individual thoughts of each of the people coming at you during that show. You're just getting an overall vibe. Nobody's telling you anything. You're performing. When you're performing and you're looking, you're seeing comments pop up and 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 love and different. Oh, I love that song. I like that. Now you now you're getting now people are specifically showing love that couldn't show it at a live show. They're specifically telling you things they'd want to tell you that they like about it or don't like about it, and that broke some ground for artists. I think the, the, the meeting them on a on a very personal level, you know, like wow, we're I'm getting to hear what fans actually like and what they hate, and that's awesome. Yeah, you know, I mean feel good to know somebody might not like something but the same token damn it i'd much rather somebody tell me something honestly right up front i might not like it at first but you know what i'll respect it in the long run a lot longer uh, in the long run so i i to me it was a beautiful thing to see what things worked what didn't work what moved people what didn't move people and when i found what what made the most difference to everyone during the show was not so much the music and it wasn't so much i'm sure the music soothed them but what i saw from my end was the people needing the people. And I saw a relationship happen on what we call the porch family, where everybody calls it the porch family. And be, that man, don't go in there and say nothing bad because they'll jump on you. <laughs> they'll give you such love when you need it. And it's that kind of uh, family vibe that I, that I saw created. And people needed to meet other people. Every week it was a place for people to meet. It was more that, I think, than... than the music is just like that contact point of like, oh, this is, you know, maybe I'm putting myself down a little, whatever. But the truth is, that's what I saw from my end was people talking to people. And, hey, I lost somebody, my father to this, and you know, and everybody's commenting and helping each other. So I, I think that's what you don't get at a real concert. Because when you put human, two human beings in a room together looking each other in the eyes, the mouth goes quiet a lot. There's timidness, there's apprehensiveness. And behind a TV screen, as much as the beer muscles come out of some people and you want to slap them and choke them across the Also, the love comes out that most people wouldn't be able to express. It's a lot easier to say it for some reason. Yeah. And I think that made a big difference throughout COVID. And I, uh, and I think that set it up, you know. As far as that community aspect, were you noticing the same names and the same people coming time and time again that, you, you know, like, were you starting to get regulars? 
at one point, you know, during the peak of it when nobody could go out. And I'm, I'm saying this was a very, it was a very narrow zone of getting a ton of viewers, you know? And that narrow zone was probably that first lockdown week even started it. And then I, I remember at that point I was getting up to views per episode after say six days, it would be up to somewhere around 100,000, 125,000 viewers, which was amazing. It's a great, great amount of views. Even more importantly, is at once we would have up to 1500 people watching, you know, to, to, you know, on a consistent level at one time, which was really, really strong. And then I did my, my Facebook, I did live on the porch from Billy's page that brought in 35. I think the next episode I had 3.5 thousand to start that episode with that. You're not getting people that like you necessarily. Who does this guy think he is? Billy Joel. You're, you're not Billy Joel. Get the hell off. This. So you, you got all that. And then, yeah, at first you got to sit there and go, wow, I don't even know this guy. Why is he saying something so mean to me? It's very right. He's coming up. You know, people are all pissed off. What did I do? What did I do? You know what I mean? Well, I didn't do anything. But that 3,500 ended up filtering back to the 1,500 that I had, but it was solid. That went on for a while. And then all of a sudden they started opening up. People could go out on a weekend. They could, you know, that kind of thing. And I was doing it twice a week for a long time, you know, from good, never taking off until I got sick. I got sick from doing it so much. I think I actually got sick. I was doing three hour after shows where I'm just, you know, we have, it's like basically a live reality show here at the house. So yeah. A lot, a lot of interesting stuff would happen there. You know, you never know what was going to happen. Somebody could have freaking kicked the bucket on me and it would have been on screen. <laughs> a show like that live, you know? Right. Uh, Reality shows, they're all taped, they're all scripted, they're all whatever. Mine was like, hey, let's just run the camera for three hours and see what the hell happens. And see what happens. Oh so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. It, it, was, it was a whole new world and people got to really hear what other people thought and what they really felt. Uh, and that was the good and the bad and the ugly. But I think, I, think, I think it was good. It's nice to put now be able to see those people in person and really put a narrative to the face. Like, oh, yeah, I had a conversation. I remember when he talked to this one. Other, and you see everything in real time. You know, you play a, play a boat, you know what I mean? You see someone go, oops, you know. And that's what Live on the Porch is supposed to be. It was supposed to be about the process, letting people into the process of learning a song. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a guy that I don't like to practice. I did a lot when I was younger. So to me, I paid my dues a little bit and I don't like to shed. I, and it kills, it kills the moment of performance when you over rehearse something too. So I don't mind blowing it. I don't mind being flat or sharp here and there. It's live. It's going to happen. I'm not warmed up. I just get out there and just start singing. By the third or fourth song, I'm getting locked in now. You know? yeah. but people get to see that process and they get to see the humanity and what we do. Like, a lot of times I'll get a song and I won't know a song, but I want to sing it. I've heard it. I'm like, I want to do my own version of that. It's my own way. What keys? We'll get, and I'll just start figuring this shit out in front of people. Yeah. And notes that go along with it. Bad chords, bad, you know, me figuring out. But by the end of the song, I've got something, you right. know, and it's unique. And it's my own take on things and uh, the mistakes and all. And I, I think that process and being real in front of people and then being able to then feel the ability to be real back really crucial and i think it got everybody through did those porch sessions affect your your live show once you got back in person they did but in a positive way you know i've been doing the billy thing for a long time i mean you know that i was doing piano bar out of high school you know you're talking 17 years old you know that's all i played was billy billy and elton and mccartney and you know 
classics like that. But I'd say, again, 60% Billy Joel stuff, you know, throughout the night. So I think what The Porch did was it gave me a, finally gave me a, a venue to be me. And there's a difference between playing your own songs at a live show and watching a couple of people walk out or being online and watching your number go from 1.5 to 1.3. Well, guess what? I lost 200 people, but 1,300 people are listening to my originals. They would have never done that in a, in a room. They would have walked out. Give me Billy Joel or don't give me anything at all. And I've been right. a songwriter my whole life. I want, that's what I want to do. I don't want to just play cover music, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'll do whatever I have to do to feed my family. And I'll do it because I love music. And I love, I love who I play with, obviously. You playing with Billy is a whole different animal than playing his music. You know, that changed also, you know? Uh, it almost seemed silly to me after playing with him to keep playing his stuff, too much of his stuff as a cover act. Because it was like, I'm playing with the real guy here. What am I missing here? You know, I think I've hit hit the, the roof of I've hit I think going any higher than that. And over the years, I've been already adding other instruments. I put horn sections. We would do in Chicago. We would do all different kinds of material. Peter Gabriel. You know, we started mixing in a lot of material to let people know that it wasn't just a one trick pony. Me adding my name to the bill. It was always just Big Shot, but Big Shot was synonymous with Billy Joel. When I wanted to start playing other material, I was finding that if we went out and build it as Big Shot, I would be locked into playing only the Billy material. And if I played anything else, venues would complain, people might complain, a few here and there would complain, and I get moved by the few. I want everyone to be happy. That's the kind of guy yeah. I can't stand when I feel, one I'm playing to that one guy in the room that just pissed off, you know? Doing the porch thing all of a sudden gave me this, yeah, I had my own venue basically where people got, people come, I wasn't going to play at the Paramount, I was playing at my house. And in my house, I'll play whatever I want to play. That would mean a couple of tunes you might not like, a couple of tunes you love, whatever. But you're getting what I feel like doing because I'm allowed to. I'm on my piano. I'm in my house. I'm not getting paid. I'm doing this for free, right? I'm doing it because I love right. to play. So the people that ended up just appreciating the love for music that we all have, and they would come on to watch that were the people that stayed and they were loyal throughout. And the people that would come and go, the trolls would come through, you know, and, and get mad and then they go out and they do what I have to do. And sooner or later, that, that kind of went away. It didn't bother me. At first it did. I'm not going to lie. I'm sensitive. You know? I'm, I'm the best I can here. And somebody's would have this across the screen, this freaking angry. I'm like, I just want to find this guy, whoever it is, pillow over the head for 30 seconds. Really think about what they just did. I mean that. And then before you know it, you're not, you, you realize what you're there, what you're doing and what it's all about. And you don't care anymore. Matter of fact, you welcome that stuff because usually what, you, what I've learned is if people are mad or they're doing something, you're doing something right. That's when, you, that's when you're hitting a nerve or that's when you're pissing someone off. That's when you're bringing them to the worst, to be the worst part of themselves. And if that's what, hey, if that's what I'm doing, if I can assist you in any way to be a bigger asshole, what I'm here for. So, but, but there was, there was, there was lots of love, man, with that show, that family, that whole, that whole group, and it leaked into the live show. So now at my live shows to, to get around to that answer is yes, it's helped in a positive way. I've got, I had so many fans on live on the porch that were live on the porch fans. They were Mike Del Judas fans. They weren't, they didn't know of Billy Joel because they heard of me online. They heard about this Facebook show. So hundreds out of the, out of the 1500 a week. 20 to 30,000 of the views that weren't that out of the hundred were now fans that just liked what they heard every week, whether it was a written, before you know it, all the requests 
you know, 60% of the requests now are for originals, you know, songs that they've heard. They don't, they don't even know. They never even saw Big Shot. They never even saw me play a Billy Joel song. They, they've Googled me and seen me play with Billy. So it's great to have an audience now that really is not just sold on, I only have to play this. I could really play whatever I want to play. And everything I do, I want to do my own way. I never liked being in a box. Oh, you sound like, but well, thank you. I appreciate it because if you could sound like that guy, then, you know, I guess that's the thing. I mean, you talk, but I never wanted, I never wanted Big Shot to be some, uh, you know, there's a place for Vegas acts. There's a, there's a place for, for novelty. And there's, that's not, I don't put it down. It's just not for me. And I, I always appreciate watching novelty acts or, or sound alike acts even. And, but for me, it was always about the music. It was purely about the music, not about a gimmick, not about uh, trying to sound a certain way or look a certain way. I never wanted to do that. And if I did sound like him or I do sound like him at times, when I sing any cover song, I imagine listening to it. That's all. I'm just imagining when it came on the radio and I'm channeling what I remember from the radio. And what that does is it gives you the essence of the, of the, the artist, right? But it channels through your own vocal cords and your own uh, imagination. So you become, it's you, you hear a lot of you, but you hear a lot of the artist too. And it's a mix of the two. Complete sound alike guys. But I, I'm, I'm just not that guy. I just never, never been. I don't like to go for that is what I'm saying. If it comes out, great, but I'm, I don't go for it. Same with the looking thing. You know, you know, I never want to do that, but the bands that do it are great at what they do. So it's like awesome to watch that too. It's just not, wasn't something that I, that I want to do, but this gave me the opportunity to be me. And that was incredible because I was able to to really play my own songs and not get so butthurt at, at that might not like it or not. I was alone in a room. There was no vibe that I had to feel. I close my eyes. I sing. I don't have to open up and see people leaving or not coming or not liking or talking or, you know, no, it was little by little every week people would stay regardless of what I played. And I, I think that's helped the most. And that's put now what I've seen going to the live shows in 2021 is that people are requesting originals live. They're requesting other things they've heard me do on the porch live, different versions of, of songs and stuff. Uh, I've even approached a bunch of Billy tunes now, you know, my own way that aren't like the album, but just, you know, like kind of put them in my own voice and my own hands, switch the key, do it on an acoustic guitar instead, make it slower, make it, you know. With people connecting with the original songs more over the last year with these porch shows, has that spurred on any songwriting? I went into Cove City last summer and recorded a bunch of really good tunes. I'm hoping that they're accepted and received well, but I love them. Good tunes. The album's going to be coming out. I have a bunch of singles that have been released off. It definitely sparks sparks the writing juices, yeah. And just as you get older and you learn more about what, you know, songwriting and about your own style that you've come into or your own whatever, you, you I think you, you just get a little better at it each time. You never get great at it. Songwriting is subjective anyway. You could think you wrote the greatest thing in the world and somebody who listens to it, it's not that thing, and that sucks. You know, that's just the nature of, of music, movies, acting, the arts in general. You're never going to please everyone all the time. You're, you can always, you can only do what makes, when you're done with it, if you can be satisfied with it, that's all. Like I did my last project and I was like, over the summer, I was like, man, I mean, a couple of these tunes, I don't think I'm going to write much better than this or I think I'm, I think this is good for me right now because you only see your own limitations you know and, you know I'm, I'm my worst critic so I always see everything as being all right that's as good as it's gonna get I suck you know <laughs> that's the end of that and then all of a sudden you do another one and you, you do another one and you're like I put that one together a lot quicker a lot and it's a lot more catchy right off the bat I didn't have to prune as much 
your writing process, as you get better as a writer, you produce your songs into the writing. They're no longer where you have to bring a raw idea to a band, a raw idea to, a, to even a producer. You're, as you're getting pruned over the years, when each of your songs get produced and you realize what works in a song and what doesn't work for, the, for a tune, you're getting just, each time, next time you write a song, you're putting all those pointers into your head and it goes into the writing of the next one. And before you know it, you got less to do to make it ready. Or it still might, might not be whatever, but your form, your, your, everything is just being structured better. You know what I mean? Because you're just getting better at it, I guess, you know? And I'm never liking anything that much that I do. Sometimes I can't look, can't look at somebody if they're listening to something I do. And probably most, most of the time why I close my eyes on the song and not let my, my own insecurities about myself dictate to me, you know, cause I'll do, I do a number on myself. I don't need anybody else to, to jump in and help out. Is the new album all songs you've written over the past year or uh, do the selections go back before 2020? Yeah. As far as finishing them. Yeah. They're new. They're all newer ones um, from last year and from this year will be new ones. But most of those, most of my songs are written over a long period of time. And what I mean by that is I'll start, I start literally by just a little, little a hook or something idea and I'll put it into my phone and I'll, I'd say about five of the songs, four or five of the songs so far on the album were little riffs or little things that I had started writing over the course of five years and just never, you know, just go back to it every once in a while and say, oh, I, I remember I had a good verse idea. I need to put that to a chorus and, and I'll, I'll get it in the ballpark. And when nothing, the glue doesn't really happen and the magic doesn't happen until you got something to say. And to me, the lyric is, is, is everything. Most of the time in the past, I would have I would have decent melodies and I have decent chord structures and that kind of thing, but I didn't have anything to say yet. And I would sometimes feel I have to force the lyric or something because I was always afraid to be too honest when I was younger. You know, like, hey, this is these are all my thoughts and I'm putting them out to the world. Most people write a diary, they keep something in their notes and they don't show anybody. Songwriters, we, we are vulnerable. We put our shit out there and it's like, hey, this is how I felt last week. How do you like it? What I think now is that the songs now are very story-like. They're very real. I don't write anything unless it's literal. It's got to it's got to have purpose from start to finish. And with this last album, my lyrics for these songs were finished before my the music was, which is an odd thing for me. And that's how I know it's a good one because I had extra verses. That doesn't happen. I had a lot to say and a lot of different ways to express it and phrase it. And I hate the 305 song because I have more than 305 to say, you know, I want the human capability nowadays of, of being able to handle more than a certain amount is, you know, short term memory. Everybody's just got that, you know, please me quick kind of right. music. So I'm really excited about this. Do you have a release date? I keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it because what's happening is I'm writing new singles and I'm like, you know what? I want to have a monster album. You know, I've had a bunch of albums that have, you know, like, like I would call them two or three deep, you know, where you have great album cuts that once you listen to them a lot, they become your favorites, just like anything else. But there's the two or three on there that jump out at you and you're like, wow, you like it right away. It's, it could go on the radio. It could do that. You get those commercial. This album is going to be a little different in regards to I've taken my time with it. It's going to be very deep. I don't care if I write, I'll, I'll wait another six months. If I can write another three hit singles, well, now it's a, now it's going to be seven, eight deep. That's an album worth saying, all right, I'm really happy with this, at least. The happiest I could be with it, which is not 
very happy, but the happier you possibly be with it. And I think I got, I think I got that this year. So you're willing to just keep working and let songs get bumped off should new ones take its place? Or keep them all. Make a big album, make a double album, put 16 tunes on there. I'm not one to do that either. You know, I'm like, put my best seven, six, make it an EP. You know, I, I always believe that making sure the best is on there. But with an album like this that you take a lot of time with, well, you know, there's a bunch of singles on this album, you know, which I couldn't have said in the past. This one's got Heroes. This has got Mona Lisa. It's got this new one that I just wrote that's, that's pretty insane. Got Right Place, Wrong Time, You're Not Alone. Yeah, all tunes that you could, you could hear in a, in a, in a, in a, on, a, on a certain station, on a certain platform. So I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy. And they all say, they all mean a lot. These songs mean a lot. So, you know, lyrically. Where do the heroes go? Uh, the archival footage in that, is that your old footage or was that stock footage? Both. A, a lot of it was stock footage. And then there's a whole, there's a whole middle section that's uh, home, home movies of my brother, my brothers when they were younger, my mother, she does that thing with her eye and then she comes out with the eye. She used to do this funny thing with her eye. And we, all of a sudden we found her doing that, you know, on, on camera, which was like gold nuggets. You know, we never even knew we had that stuff as a family. So it was cool to put all of it in. Uh, and then, and of course, in, in, in the course of making the video, Gia McKenna uh, produced the video. And I, I'm a pain in the ass, you know. I, I'm, you know, I don't just give the project over. I end up being a little too involved in some things that probably annoy people. But the, con- the thing was, are we, are we doing this... Are we, sequ- are we doing this in sequence to, to the lyric? Is each scene going to go to the lyric or are we going to go off kind of into a different realm and not go to the lyric and make a story. And it just seemed like with heroes that it needed a story. It needed to show, it needed to show what I was saying and what I was feeling at the time. I was talking about holding my son or my father, holding me, you know, put put me on his shoulders, man. I went right to a St. Paddy's day footage. I went right to a father and son holding this, you know, because those are the, that's the imagery I have in my mind. That's the stuff I want to, I want to project to people. Some of that stock footage, we couldn't believe it. It was so moving. And it was just like, wow, that just said everything I wanted to say. And I didn't have to go digging into an old, you know, VCR tape. Were these old films and old movies that, that you guys had known about and, and maybe had watched a bit over the years? In the family, we had heard that, you know, hey, we got these eight millimeter films of mommy and daddy, and, you know, back when we were younger and yada, yada. But we never really, I think my brother John had a bunch of, of the footage on Real to Real. So he set it up in his house one night and he took his phone and he just put the video camera up to the screen and that's the actual footage we used, a phone of the, of the screen. So you talk about, you know, with the, these cameras we have right now, getting the highest definition possible of video at the right angle of an old eight millimeter tape. And it just fit so well. It just like kind of fell right in and, and worked so good. And she said that to do any kind of editing really of anything or, or filters or anything. It just kind of. Yeah, that was great. You could tell just right away how genuine the footage is, I guess, is the best way to say it. Just how well it, it was wedded to the lyrics. It was great to find even the stock footage that we found because it just matched the, the era. It matched the time, the time period. It matched, you know, you know, when, when, when all Italian guys that just came off the boat from Brooklyn were, were, were walking around with no shirts on, with white beaters and with their kids on their shoulders and wrestling on the ground. You know, those were the times that I remember. Those are the times I'm thinking about. When my dad looked like that or my brothers looked or my grandfather, my uncle looked like that. And when she showed me some of that footage, I was just, I was like, oh my God, I'm in tears. You know, it's just so, it's like, this is it. This is what we need. This is the footage. And then finding our footage too of my family and putting it all together was, 
And then, of course, giving the nod to, to first responders was a huge thing, too, because make sure all that storyline goes to the lyrics. But whenever I go away from the lyric and I go to the instrumental break, there's only two times it goes to that instrumental break. I said, that's when we go completely off the storyline and we go right for the first responders and we go for the heroes of our world and it, it encompassed an all universal hero kind of vibe, which is like, which is what I wanted to go for, for sure. Things that were going on in the world with COVID and with 9-11 and everything else really the word heroes kept coming out and that was kind of how it blended into the into the melody lines moving away from your own music but you also started the from the cans band i guess earlier this year so i'm, I'm real excited because i was reading the newsday article and it said among the songs you're doing abacab and so now you're on drums and singing on this one yeah full-on phil collins this time around yeah <laughs> drums have always been my favorite instrument drums and bass actually my favorite instruments to play Playing drums, as you know, I mean, you know, you're, you're a side man in a band. You're usually not the front man of a band, you know. When I listen to a song, any song on the radio of a band, first thing I zoom in on is the drums. If I see a band live, it's the drummer. If the drummer ain't, don't have a pocket, don't feel good, doesn't have good time, I'm like, it's a sinking, <laughs> sinking sand. So it was always a thing that I played, always played in the studio. And again, played by ear, but I took lessons. It was the first instrument I actually took lessons on nine years old, 10 years old. So yeah, it's, it's been really fun. And getting, and that band too was, you know, was about doing that. It was about paying homage to the singer drummers. You know, a lot of the material was going to be, you know, some Henley and, and Phil Collins and Levon Helm, you know, some of the classic drummer singers that I was always blown away by. I always loved watching a drummer sing. It was always like, yeah, you got to think a lot. Your brain's going and it's just cool. It's just cool. So I wanted, I want to finally want to play live on the drums. I've always played in the studio, always played, running, running click tracks and recording tracks. And I've, I've always done it and I, I never got to play live. So it was like, I, I got to do this. I got to get out and play, you know? And it's been so fun playing with guys that I actually grew up with too, went to school with or played with bands with a little bit later in life. And so it, it, it means something too. These guys, these guys love what they do and, you know, have history with, with a lot of them. Was it tough trying to sing or like kind of wrapping your, your head or your lungs around singing and drumming at the same time? Or is that something you kind of did already? Yeah, you said the word lungs. And I think the lung issue was it. It's the breathing because because when you're playing drums, you're out, let's face it, you, it's, it's, it's calisthenics, man. I mean, you're, it's cardio. You're just moving. You're out of breath. Your heart's pumping. You're out. Now all of a sudden say you got to sing a ballad. Your body's still going. You're breathing like, and now you got to learn how to, Control, stay in tune, sing light and easy while your heart's racing. Yeah, oh yeah, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> it's hard enough to just play it and sing it with rhythm, rhythmic issues. But once you get down, now it's about control. Do you have control? Uh, trying to control it has is, is been, been the beast. But I love it. I love, I love the challenge of it anyway. Are you a hard hitter? Because you know you got Genesis on there. You're doing some Zeppelin stuff like that. Are you really coming down on those drums? Or yeah, I can do I can do both. And I think I think for me, uh, sticks sticks are a big issue. You know, sticks putting a, putting a set of light sticks in my hand, I immediately go traditional, and I just want to play a little. I want to play jazz, and I want to hit it light and easy, and I want to you know turn it over, hit the you know uh, side stick, and do that kind of stuff. But the minute you put a big piece of lumber in my hands, I'm I'm caveman something to be said about drummers what i focus on always is the ability to play different fields and to play them accurately in other words play them the way play a rock groove the way a drummer would play a rock a rock drummer would play a rock groove but literally learn the essence of 
what they're doing, even watch them mechanically, the arms, the hand, and whatever it is, the aggression to make it happen, where you're hitting the drum, where you're hitting the snare drum, you know, that hitting the rim and the snare and making it tight and big and even. Jazz, you can hit it light, you can hit it hard. You, that's the beauty of jazz, it's dynamic. So the ability to be able to play the different styles and the different feels are what I love about drums, being able to switch that mode and, you know, try to do each individual style the best I possibly can, focus on that. It's a lot of fun. I'm wondering too, if there's a sort of a parallel when you were saying when you would do a cover and you were doing it kind of off the cuff and you were trying to channel, you know, what you remember hearing on, on the radio or the best part, is it sort of the same thing where you're, you're sort of filtering what you're doing on drums or on guitar for a cover? You're just kind of filtering through what it's supposed to be. And then, you know, your, your interpretation of that. With drumming, especially when you're playing classic songs, classic rock songs, you want to get the essence of the tune. You want to make sure you capture the feel of it, right? You want to, but you have to play the fills note for note. No, no, because then there's no, there's not so much, there's no creativity involved. So to me, the creativeness comes out with, I'm going to put a fill where they would have put a fill and I'm going to, I'm going to play the fill. I'm going to, if they would have called me for this track to play drums on it 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this is what I would have played on this section, or this is what, you know, stay, stay to the groove. But if, you, if I'm going for a fill, it doesn't have to be the exact fill. I want to put my own cre creativity there. We were doing a, the album version of Eminence Front by The Who. Love that groove. Just, it just sits, six minutes. And I was like, you know what? It's, it's, it's great. It's mundane. And I don't mind listening to it for six minutes. It's great. I said, we should try something different. And I, I grabbed some st light sticks and started doing this little quiet, funky little groove. And we built a new version of the song. And we have uh, our, our keyboard player is a great, great uh, R&B kind of singer that does jazz stuff. Kid Dan Wood, I call him Liberace all the time because he loves to play all over the place. But vocally, he's, he's fantastic. And we do this little jazz version. Before you know it, it takes, takes a few minutes to get into the song. It's a long song. But when, by the time we get to that, that pocket and that groove, it's just, it's just out there. It's out in the open. So I love doing stuff like that where we can uh, creatively make the, some songs you got to do the way they are. You know, like Hotel California, you know, just can't kill the beast. That fill's got to be. There are certain fills that have to be the fill. Yeah. You, you got to have that that fill. But all the other areas like cashmere, when I, we play cashmere, I, I'll play. I'll, I'll just play whatever I would have played or would want to play, but keep it in the vein of what John would have done. Figure like maybe a B take or a C take that they did where, where the producer said to him, hey, give me some different kind of drum ideas, different. That's where I'll step in. Nothing's going to be as like Bonham did it. The guy is the greatest. But it's cool to put your own self into that and be like, oh, all right, this is cool. You know, and have fun with it. That's where it's not, you're not just carbon copying something where you're actually putting a little bit of yourself into it. And as a drummer, your own feel, your natural clock and your own natural feel will always come into what you play, even if you're trying to play it like the record your natural will come into it. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, you know what? This is, I mean, you may be the person to ask then because I've been thinking about this myself a lot lately. I feel like in a lot of situations, the one thing the drummers we get to do is I feel like we get to play with those arrangements a little more because the string players don't always have a handle on what we're doing and we sort of slip stuff under the radar. But I feel like a guitar player doesn't get away with that as much. Whereas the same thing, you know, whereas you're saying, well, I can choose to play this fill or I can think about what Bonham would have done and sort of get into him. 
do you think that you like as a drummer you have more freedom doing that whereas the string parts are more locked in or do you think everybody sort of has that opportunity we have the ability as drummers to shift we're shapeshifters and we could take we could take the overall vibe of a song up we could take the vibe down we could you know you could bring it to places talking about string sections and big band and orchestra kind of stuff well hell man yeah you can have all the fun you want as long as the band can play to you you better be able to lay it down that's the most important thing time and feel i tell all drummers that time and don't worry about the big fill the, the big fills don't make it on the radio anymore you know what I mean? They just, you know, the, the quadruplets and the, they're not, they're nowhere to be, you could play them to visit, to revisit classic rock. But if you get called by a producer in the studio, that's not what they're going to want to hear. Simple part that elevates the song and brings the next level of the, that brings the song to the next level or the next part to the next level. There's no more soloing, you know, like there was in rock songs. There's no guitar solo anymore. You don't hear a guitar solo. Touching on Billy for a second too. And that was, such a beautiful part of those those studio records too is Billy Joel is a piano fronted band so everybody knew their role in supporting the song and supporting what he was doing so you know you had two guitar players you had Liberty who's a monster hitter but nobody got in the way yeah well the beauty of that band and I I say it all the time is especially specifically for, for those that that middle chunk of years that those guys particularly played you know we're talking about you know Liberty Doug I'm going to go on, on a limb and just say, as far as the, the way the, the album sounded rhythmically, it's all Liberty and Duck. That, that was the shape of the feel of the tunes, the shape of, of how they were approached. Anything that's layered on top is going to always be great, depending on what you hear first, right? Oh, that's a great guitar part. Why? Because I heard it like 20 times and now I want to hear it again. So whoever puts it down first wins. When you have a drummer like Liberty, who was just so insanely creative, he wasn't just going to be a guy in the background, you know, but he also wasn't going to be a guy to step on, to step on the shoes. And then you have Doug reeling it in. I always called Doug. This, this was just, you know, we could talk about, I could talk about him forever as a bass player, because as a bass player, that's who I learned directly from. Not just, oh, I listened to him when I was influenced. No, I sat in the studio with him and picked his brain. <laughs> that's how I learned how to play bass. Uh, I was a I was a I was a bass player that played like a guitarist before 1993, and in 1993 I became a bass player, and it was because of Doug Stegmaier. It'll always be because of Doug Stegmaier. Doug knew how to take any wild energy that was going on, and we know that Liberty's got wild energy, right? It's just you know there were there were nights it was just off the cuff, and him and Billy both are just. I, can you play it any faster? Can you? Can you? You know. You know. Doug had the ability to. To go to say, all right, it's getting really fast, which is going to make it could make it sound a little sloppy. So I'm going to I'm putting this in. And he and he even though the tempo could have been shifting a bit, he knew how to make that sound like this. And that's that's the glue. That's the glue of a great bass player is he's the he's the one that takes that movement and he just squeeze a little in here, squeeze a little in there. And before you know it, man. And they had something, man. You know, that, that rhythm section was... Well, it's funny because I always made the joke that Chuck is much closer to album tempos, right? But for so many people who are so used to the way Liberty played it, even though what you guys are playing is more true to tempo, yeah, they were playing so fast <laughs> that it feels so different. If Billy looked back at Chuck and said, play faster, Chuck will play faster. So for anybody, it's always like, oh, he's a, he drags, he plays... 
He's putting it where Billy wants it. Billy's 70 years old. 70. He's done trying to, to chase after this, this horse that, that just ran by. He's not running after it anymore. He wants to be able to catch his breath. And I don't blame yep. him. Because the older I get, I'm telling you, it's harder and harder. And I'm 50. I just hit 50. And even in the 40s, I was starting to be like, wow, I don't exactly have the exact same stamina I had, you know, the, a year ago, two years ago. And each year, you got to do things to, you know, keep that going. And, I, and so, the, so yeah, the, there's, a, there's a big difference between those two. And I wish it would get talked about more in, in a civil way and in a, in a, and in a way that – that in a way that people understood, you know, you don't have to, in order to show that you love liberty, you don't got to put Chuck down. And, and the people that do that on, on, on the pages and on that stuff, you know, look, I'm putting myself out on a limb here by saying this. I know it's obviously out there. So I don't, I don't, and I, I'll say it a million times. I really don't care. Everybody's good at what they do. Everybody brings something to the table. People don't have to say mean things about somebody else just to make Liberty feel better. Liberty doesn't have to feel better. Liberty, Liberty owns those album tracks, but that's not what's being played now. And it's not gonna be right now. You know what I mean? That's not what's, what we can handle right now, you know? And what happened between them happened between them. That's got nothing to do with any of us. So people that are involved in those conversations should just shut the fuck up because let's, I'm sorry, but let's be realistic. Most of these people aren't liberty. They weren't. They don't have exclusive conversation, uh, feeling vibes that that these two have gone through in their relationship as friends their whole life. Not for me to get involved in that shit around then. I ain't getting involved in it. All I know now, now where we're at is everybody should. There's a certain way that I think people should act now. I can speak to that. If you don't know anything. You should shut up. You know, and if you, if you and if you do, you should shut up. A couple months ago, we, we did a close listen of 12 Gardens Live. And, you know, just, just to that point, the feels were so different, but we noticed how Billy rode the rhythms differently on, on, that, on that album. And it was, it was different, you know, but it was like, hey, man, you know, we, we've got a couple live albums. We've got a handful of great bootlegs. It's actually fun to hear these songs take a slightly different uh, direction in that sense, too. I think, I think 12 Gardens was, was a great live album. They, they put a lot of work into those sessions. They learned every song. They rehearsed every song. You know, you want to talk, and people are always talking about album cuts and, and rarities, and they learned them all. I'm telling you now that we've pretty much learned them all. People are always wondering what's going to get played, not going to get played. The truth is we played at the between the rehearsals or even at certain gigs before a show. Billy might have heard something old of his on the radio and just like been like, hey, that'd be cool. Well, I can't think of too many songs aside from early Cold Spring Harbor. I can't think of too many songs that we haven't touched on that we wouldn't be able to play in, in, a, in an hour. So we're ready to do that stuff. Uh, but truth be told, you know, people love to tell Billy what the way he should perform and people love to tell him, tell him exactly what he needs to do. I'll geek out with the best of them. I'd love to hear a show of all deep cuts, but you got to think with your reality hat on of like, okay, you're going to an arena with 18,000 people. 90% of those 18,000 people want to hear what's on Greatest as 1 and 2. Do you, want to, do you want to work or do you not want to work? Do you want to continue playing the, the garden? you want to continue playing stadiums? You don't do it playing Roberta. You don't do it playing through the long night and doing all of them night long. It's not going to happen. Yeah, do you throw them in? And we have at the garden. If you go back over seven years, we've covered almost everything. We covered a lot. I remember I caught one of the running on when you guys uh, did running on ice once. I, w I was there for that one. 
you're not going to throw four or five deep cuts in a night. That's just not going to happen. You can't. Because let's face it, when he tried that years ago, everybody talks about the show he opened with uh, Piano Man, you know, that whole thing down and he played all the album cuts. The worst reviews he's ever gotten from a concert. And let me tell you something, at his age right now, that was when, like 2006 maybe, right? Yeah. Now, at 72 years old, all it takes is a couple of bad write-ups to make you reevaluate and go, I don't need the money. Maybe I don't playing then they don't like it right but, you, know, you want to please everybody i get it but you but you got to keep the tour going you got to sell out stadiums and you got to play the hits and the, the fact is he's got enough of them and if not hits that charted he's got enough radio songs there's a big difference between you know ones that made the charts and ones that just continually get played on the radio scenes was never a single that gets played more than any song you hear right new york state of mind believe it or not was never a charted single it was you know but these are all songs that are his most famous songs. So he has a, he has about 15, 20 hit songs that he could do a night that everyone yeah. on the radio, everyone at some point. Where is there room for a lot of these other tunes? In order to play Summer Highland Falls, you got to take out Vienna. Vienna only lost once in that contest he does. And I think he still decided to play it. <laughs> he lost and he was like, oh shit. Yeah, we'll play Vienna, you know, because he probably put it up against a song that we didn't even know. He just threw it out there because he figured Vienna was going to win, you know. There's fun with that stuff, you know what I mean? But the truth is, you know, we, we have to work. And and listen, ready? On a smaller scale, uh, you know, we're, we're big shots selling out shows at the Paramount, right? We got, you know, 1,600 people, insane, ready to go. Nothing has cleared a room out worse for me than attempting things like that. Even on that, on that level, and that speaks volumes. That's like taking a poll. When you take a poll, what do you do, right? It's like the little soup thing. If you take a little, you know, spoonful out of the soup, you could basically tell the ingredients of what's in the rest of the soup. Well, if you, you get the same thing out of 1,600 people at the Paramount, you can almost bet that's going to feed in the 35,000 out of stadium or 40,000. So you gotta, you got to play what people want to hear. And that means a majority of the people. And I've done it. I've, I've had shows where, you know, let me go off a little. Let me try this. We'll play this. We'll play that. Went too off, off the deep end. And then the show becomes too long. The show feels long. When, you don't, when you're in the audience and you don't know a song, it gets long. The show gets long. You're immediately like, you know, it's a great, it's a nice song, but I'll listen to that at home. Let me learn it first. And then, you know, a lot of artists throwing out their new shit. I'm all for him playing his fucking hits, man. He's 70-something. He's you, got, you got such a catalog of, of radio songs. Play them. I, I remember seeing so many people complaining. They're like, when, when he would do, you know, when do you, you know, bring out Chainsaw to do Highway to Hell, right? They're like, mm -hmm. oh, we're, we're losing one Billy song. I'm like, yeah, but you're getting three and a half minutes where Billy can rest his voice. Hello. You know, you have, you have people now, even with, with the opera, you know, put it, to, oh, put it to bed. It's all, you know, and the truth is Bill, he does need every, every little bit he can get. He just needs a break once. In a while. And he's, he does what goes over, what goes over at the show, you know? So when Chaser does highway to hell, I mean, let's, you, could, you know, people go ballistic. The opera, they, the people love that. It's, a, it's not because it's just me. It's, it's the song. It's an intense song. And there's Billy playing classical piano, which he loves to do. He's getting to do, he just loves to do it, you know? So if something goes over, it goes over. If it doesn't, it's yeah. gone. I can tell you now, it's, it's out, you know? Watching back to like, you know, the Russian tour where, you know, Billy and Doug were going through the set list and you could, you know, Billy was 
struggling, you know, his voice, he had, you know, blown his voice a couple shows in and it's like, so any opportunity that we, we can give him a couple minutes to just not have to do it. You're going to get a better show. Let's cover another subject, this uptown girl subject, right? Which drove me and I saw the post, you know, and I know the guy, I, I like him. I like Andrew, but we had, you know, but I'll, I'll break balls with the best of them. So, and I'm telling you right now for a fact that Billy sings on the song. He sings the whole song. Whether or not that's what's coming out, I'm there to add the double on that song. If you listen to the album, there are two lead vocals together. Essex 80s trick, double your vocal track. And when I got in the band, a lot of what we did was go back to the album, like on Zanzibar. I got the old man's car on that part. That that classic Billy double voice where I come in, he's got the, he's got her newer voice. I got more of the younger tone and we put it together and something happens and the sound and BR makes magic and does what he has to do. So, but on Uptown Girl, he's singing the whole time. But does is he trying to hide the fact that I that I sing with him? No. They got a spotlight on me the whole song. And half the time he's taking the microphone and moving it away from himself. <laughs> he's fine. You know, for people to say, oh, people think he can get over on them. Are you kidding me? And guess what? The song gets played. Because he's out, that song, man, you're out. It's, it's, you, you, you're swinging, man. You're swinging in public. You need two male voices to make it that much more masculine and to make it sound like that Frankie Valley. Because when you're doing a falsetto -y kind of thing, and when Billy sings it, it's falsetto. He does yeah. a lot of that. Frankie, you know, he does all that, and I'm full chest. So you put the chest and that high together, and he blends them in. I, I'm like, that's about as close as you can, you know, get to doing it the way it was, at least, the way they approached it, you know. Billy likes it like that, you know what I mean? So, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I, I, 90% of the time I'm telling Josh to turn him down in my ears because he's, because I'll have his voice up on We Didn't Start the Fire. But if I'm singing a full lead on something, which isn't often, a full song doesn't happen. It's just that song. On that particular song, I don't want to hear him as much. Because then I, I, I'll go off. I'll, I'll go to what he's, I don't want to go to what he's doing. And the key there is for me to, to put an anchor down and then him layer that falsetto on top of it. And together it sounds great. You know, I mean, to me, I, I love the way it sounds. I think BR does a great job with the, with the mixing of it. But yeah, no, nobody's trying to pull anything over on anyone. If they were trying to hide me, they would have stuck me in the back with a fucking microphone with a towel over my head. And, and to the point of, of getting a breath. I've noticed that we'll do certain things where he's not bailing out because he doesn't want to go for a note. He's bailing out because he needs breath for the next one. And that's the key there. Like it could just be the end of a, uh, uh, I'm trying to think there's a couple of lines in moving out that I'll do the last note of a, just even one note of a phrase to the, to come right in on the next line. Uh, this is the time we'll do that. I'll hold out the note. This is the time. And he'll, and he'll, to remember, and he'll come off of it while I hold out. You know, so a lot of it's, you know, effect for the what he wants to, to get across and what, you know, so it's cool. I think it's cool that he, hey, I'm not complaining. <laughs> he gave me this unbelievable gig. I'm, I'm going to be happy uh, with, with every bit of it and be thankful for it because it could be gone tomorrow. And, you know, there's, uh, there's no guarantees here. So what's your guys rehearsal regimen like? It's got to be a little different than most bands, I guess, because you guys play at least once a month. When there's a long period of time off, we'll do rehearsals. Playing every month, we rehearse at soundcheck. We get there hours early and they'll tell us what songs we're going to, you know, we're going to, if there's anything that we haven't seen in a while that we got to run over or 
but everybody everybody in the band's got the, got the catalog in their in, in them in their hands you know so and then the, you know in their brains so all it takes is just a little bit of listening to remember oh yeah oh yeah a couple of run-throughs i'll do i'll do i usually start off the run-throughs i rehearse you know do that do billy's thing and then Billy shows up. We run it through again if he feels like he wants to. Sometimes we'll just be like, uh, "You got, you know, what are we doing?" He doesn't even know. He might be with the list, you know. What we got? Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not doing that. You know, does does that? And then, oh, uh, yeah. What about this one? Uh, do we need to do that? And then Dave will say, "Well, we ran it. You know, we just ran it before with Mike." He's like, "All right, no, we'll do it later. We don't have to do it now." But that that because Billy also likes that freshness. He doesn't like to work a song to death. He'd rather he'd rather screw it up. Same thing, just to have that real feel that like, it's like a, uh, he calls it the edge to have that edge. Yeah. He's to have the edge where you're on pins and needles. Oh, I got it. Because if a musician doesn't have to think anymore, you can bet the feel of it's gone. It's going to go right after that. The vibe is going to disappear with that. What people experience live is the newness or the freshness of what the musicians are feeling on the stage. If the musicians mm -hmm. are fucking you can bet the crowd is going to feel it in some way. They won't yeah. know what it is or feel it. Yeah, I mean, think about it. He's got so many songs. He, he wants to be excited about playing them. You play them too much. Some of them, you know, he knows he has to. But because he knows he has to, you know you're getting great energy from the audience, which then translates into you having the desire to play it. It's reciprocal, you know. But if he's sick of it or if the audience is going to get sick of it, it's not something that has to be done. Well, yeah, let's put some other ones in there. And that's why we have mixed in the different, we do a rare cut each tune or something different, something a little off that's not a hit or not, you know. And he's conscious of it. He is, you know. And there, there were times in the beginning of the tour he wanted to do more of them. But then there were shows that we did where we tried them. And, you know, he doesn't want to lose, the, you don't want to lose the audience, man. No. No worse feeling being a singer on stage and knowing your crowd's not into what you're doing. Let me tell you, people underestimate that. They think, oh, he's Billy Joel. He can play whatever he wants. Fuck the people. You know, no, that's not the case. No. You know, the, he wants to feel. He wants to do a great job up there, and he wants to feel like everybody likes what he's doing. I was at the Portland show a couple of years ago, and you guys played "Stop in Nevada." That was you played it that night, and maybe a handful of nights around that date. And I just remember consciously thinking to myself, "I'm like, I'm going to savor every minute of this because I may never hear it again live." Yeah. So speaking of keeping things fresh, I uh, wanted to talk about the, the first show back at Fenway. Andy couldn't make it, so you stepped in on bass. How much uh, prep time did you have on that? <laughs> Not much at all. I found out on the Saturday before the Wednesday. So I was in Pennsylvania doing a uh, show at Big Shot, a private event. I got the call. There was a couple of different people. You know, BR, BR knows I play bass, and, and, and BR you know, was a, a fan of, of the way I played. So I think... My name was in the list with a couple other people. One of them might not have been vaccinated, and that was that could have been an issue. Uh, but the fact that the fact that I knew the material and I stepped out, I was like, yeah, I could, you know, I could, I could do it. You know, I knew I could do it, but at the same token, I had to go over these songs, you know, just to show, just to tell myself that I could do it. Uh, but there were a few I had to really work on. Zanzibar, I had to run through a few times. That's you know, that's a that's a, like a little walk. But no, I only had a few days, so I, I stopped right at a music store. Literally, I was on my way to play golf. It was in the afternoon, and we went right into a music store. I bought a, I bought a Fender Jazz right in the music store with a little battery-powered amp. Got back in the truck. I made my friend Joe, the Jesu. Joe drove 
did a golf course. We had 45 minutes. I spent 45 minutes in the back seat, just going over the set list of what, of what I know I could get through without having to listen. I'd say 70%, 60 to 70% of what was on there. I was like, even if I got cold in a pinch and I didn't have time to go over it, I would have been able to do, but I could have made it easier for myself and said, listen, can we not do this one and that one? And can we just, but I was like, you know, you can't take Zanzibar out of the set list, you know, cause now I'm taking something away from call and call needs to be heard. Cause he's a monster. So it was like, that's getting played. I don't, I'm, I'll have that song down. The big, the trickiest ones for me were the ones where I'm doing more vocals and I'm used to doing them from a guitar. And now I'm on a bass, which is a completely different rhythmic instrument to make sure I could keep playing that stuff. Uh, but bass playing and singing, thank God, was something that I had some good practice doing back in the 90s with Kick Gloves, the band I played in with uh, Mike Sorrentino, Ken Sino. I did a, probably about a good year and a half to two years, six nights a week, never taking a night off, five nights a week, whatever it was. And we did not take off. And we were playing in front of big crowds and stuff. That got me kind of more comfortable behind a bass guitar than any other instrument in front of an audience, aside from being behind a piano or drums. When you're behind something, there's a sense of this seat, you know, you got, are you okay? You're going out like this in front of an audience with just a mic stand in front of you and a small little guitar, you better feel comfortable on it. And believe it or not, Fenway was probably the most comfortable I felt with an instrument, with the with that instrument in my hand, playing that material, but not comfortability in regards to here's my first time and let me not fuck it up. That was very disconcerting and very scary. And like, I was focused all night, man. I had to be focused, you know, but I really enjoyed it because I felt Doug, man. I just felt him all night. Uh, went out and got a couple extra jazz basses that day. Uh, the one I brought, plus a new one in Boston, right down the road, picked up a new one there. Uh, and then used one of my old Ibanez basses and we put flat wounds. We put old flat wound strings on it like Doug used. And, yeah. And, and sure enough, you know, it, it, that got recognized by BR and I think Billy too, where it was kind of like, that was a very Doug-esque. It sounded very Doug-esque. I'm like, well, I didn't learn from the guy, you know, himself. But, uh, but uh, it, was, it was really cool. It was, uh, energy was incredible that night. But, no, you know, not a normal energy where, that I could just totally enjoy like I would have another gig where everything was already in my hands and in my, you know. So there was a little more thinking involved. One positive was I didn't have time to get nervous about Nessendorma because I just, right up until Nessendorma, I had to be worrying about what I was doing here. So all of a sudden, I put the bass down and here I am singing and I'm like, oh shit, I'm not ready for this. You know, I gotta. So that took a minute to like start, get the vocalist thing up. And I was like, I'm all over the place, man. Uh, but you know what? Listen, uh, we, I felt good that we could keep it in the camp. You know, I think everybody felt good about that, that, you know, we were able to, we didn't have to, find somebody on the outside that possibly had to learn all the material, not be comfortable with the arrangements, endings, beginning, middle is already in my head. So now it was just an issue of putting it in my hands. And the key is, you know, it's not just about knowing the chords. And that if you know it on guitar, you can play it on bass, which is absolute horseshit. You know, you, right. you got to be able to play it like a bass player. You know, you have to, you know, and be a bass player so it was it was nice to put it was nice for a night to be able to do that to help andy out because i mean i know andy felt absolutely horrible and andy being one of the safest guys in the crew i mean he's the guy that you know let's face it you know make sure everything is above par you know wear his mask everywhere you know 
and he's the guy that 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 gets it. So it was kind of like doing anything I could for a fallen comrade, so to speak, mm-hmm. because I would hope that the same would be done, you know, and help me out if I if something ever happened. So, but it was a great experience. The energy was incredible that night, and um, the, the most probably now the most second most memorable. I say second most memorable night, third most memorable night because of the base. It was special. There was a Doug thing there, and it was special to me. You know, being that I worked with him right up until he passed it, getting that, I really felt him there. It was kind of like every time I focused on how I was approaching the parts and the mutes and all the things he would do uh, and the way he would bounce his left hand to keep tempo as well as muting the rights. So it was everything, every time I dug in to really listen, dug in, no pun intended, it was like feeling him. What would he play right here? How would he make it feel? And that was me all night. That's why I was thinking that way all night. I never ask you where you go After I leave you in the morning We go our different ways To separate situations It's not that easy anymore The day I do must be done I give my time to total strangers Well, I for one can't wait to hear this album that's coming down the road at some point. Mike's a great singer and has made a great living, you know, playing Billy's music, you know, in his own band and in Billy's band and playing a lot of the classics, the Elton's and the Paul McCartney's of the world. But I, I, you know, I've heard quite a bit of his solo work and he is a great songwriter and I can't wait to hear it when it comes out. And when it does, we will let you all know right away because I guarantee it's a record you're going to want to pick up. So I'm excited. I liked a couple of Mike's songs that I had heard uh, when I was getting ready to do the Doug interviews last year. And as good as they were, the new one this year is just a, I think he took a real big step forward and I'm genuinely excited to hear a full album's worth of these songs now. Just to hear, you know, the mindset of these guys where, Billy's their main gig, but it's not their only gig. And that's not in a cynical way. That's just in a, hey man, if you play music, if music is what you do, you do it all the time, no matter what. So it's great to hear how he's balancing it all and and how it all works together. Billy's playing maybe 50 dates a year now. Long gone are these 200 date world tours. You know, Billy's in a position certainly where he can do as little or as much as he wants and he's good to go. These musicians, whether it be Mike or Tommy or, you know, up and down the line of this band, you know, they're all hungry players. And so 50 nights a year isn't a whole lot when that's what you live and breathe for right now. Mm -hmm. And it's good to see Mike finally giving a chance to take a step back and focus on some of his original music. Now, of course, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, Are you going to the first Madison Square Garden show back? Or by the time this comes out and you hear it, how were you there? What did you think? Were you at Fenway? And did you notice when Mike came out on bass instead of guitar? And have you heard his music or seen Mike's either solo shows or big shot shows? Tell us what you think. Tell us what you think of his new music. 
As always, we love to hear from you. Glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we're all over the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Your comments, your likes, your shares are all incredible and help keep us going. We love your emails and your feedback. And also those uh, positive ratings and reviews that you've been leaving on Apple Podcasts and everywhere you get the podcast. That, that's been incredible. And you guys are so instrumental in helping us grow this podcast. You've been knocking it out of the park. And uh, please keep it coming because we, we love it. And we love you guys. And can't wait to see what we got in store next. Yep. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you soon. Thanks, everyone. sun goes down and the day is over when the last of the light has gone as they pour into the street I will be getting closer closer as the cars turn the headlights on as they close it down I'm going to open it up and while they're going to sleep we'll just be starting to Guitar, newest member of the band, Mr. Mike Del Judas.